joined on Football CFB today by Patrick Barclay, one of the best sports writers in Britain. Absolutely delighted to have you on, Paddy. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. That's very kind of you to say that. I'm uh, sort of probably ex-sports writer now, but uh, the wonderful thing uh, about not being on the circuit anymore um, is that I'm able to do podcasts now, and this is one. It's a, it's a great honour, actually, to be added to the list of guests that you've had in pretty short time. So uh, congratulations, and I'm really looking forward to having a natter. Brilliant. Um, I want to talk to you, first of all, just a very simple question. When did, where did your passion for football begin? Well, it began in, in Dundee, naturally enough. Um, I, I can remember seeing uh, some great football on TV at, at a, a young age. I, was, I had a granddad who I spent a lot of time with, and he was always banging on about Dundee's greatest team at the time, which was the 1910 team. <laughs> I mean, that's unbelievable. It was the team. We won the F, uh, Scottish FA Cup in 1910. And he was always going on about certain players that played for them. He wasn't a big football fan. He didn't go to the games. But he just banged on and on and on about this Dundee team. And I would just sit and sit at his feet and, and listen and wonder. And um, basically, eventually, I pestered him to take me to a, to a, a Dundee game. And it's, it's strange. It just shows you, it would be in the mid-50s, this. Um, I remember it was against Hibs and we won 1-0 and uh, I, I, I can remember he drove me, he was you know, quite reasonably prosperous and uh, he drove me in his car, a humble Hulk, uh, to uh, Dens Park, dropped me off and then picked me up at the end of the game. I was probably eight, you know, but uh, it was all quite safe in those days. Now he'd probably be locked up for negligent grandfatherhood or something. But... Uh, now that was it, and, and around that time there was some great football. There wasn't much football on the telly, and, and we didn't actually have a telly at first, but um, uh, I had friends, you know, who did. And, um, and, and there was, it was around the time, I was sort of at a formative age, probably a bit later, the great Spurs double team of around 1960 um, arose, and... Uh, uh, this was before Dundee had won the league for the one and only time in 1961 too. Uh, the Brazilians, we were beginning to get flashes of this wonderful Brazilian play. Um, there had been, there was, there was continental influences and it all, I, I just, I just loved football. We used to play at Riverside Park down, uh, down by the River Tay in Dundee. Uh, we used to play hour upon hour upon hour down there. Uh, it just, I don't know. I honestly don't know where it came from, but the bug just uh, got me. And uh, I'm still in love with football. When I stopped doing it, I often used to wonder when I was a, a sports writer, a football writer for newspapers, and I, I used to hate it, you know, football, you know, because it was, it, it, it was, it was what made my head hurt, you know, with effort, you know, because you had to concentrate so much on games when you were reporting them and uh, and so on. So I, I kind of had a love-hate relationship with the game throughout my 40 years as a journalist. And I always wondered what it would be like when I eased up. Um, and to my surprise and joy, I just w went back to being a schoolboy, a f football fan. But I was aged, you know, obviously late 60s, early 70s. And uh, I got a f uh, season ticket at Dance Park, uh, which I, got, I, mean, I live in London, so I can't go that often. But... Um, my, my best mate, who's also 
of a certain age, shall we say, he's entitled to use my ticket. So he sometimes uses it when I don't go. Uh, so I, I used to get there about, if I'm lucky, six or seven games a season with uh, derbies, obviously, at the top of the top of the list. I fear we may not have one next season, but, you know, they are out there for Dundee supporters, the derbies are our cup final, even for United supporters, actually. You know, the, the, the derbies are fantastically important and atmospheric and, and fantastically wonderful. And... Um, and then I've also got a season ticket at Fulham. And obviously I used, well, until the lockdown, I used that every every game. In fact, uh, I missed the, the last game that they were due to play, which was against Brentford, a derby at, at Craven Cottage. Um, I missed that because of uh, illness, which I think might have been COVID-19. I had a very mild illness for about a week. Um, and I, I missed that one. I was looking forward to watching it on the telly before it was later in the day, obviously. Um, it was postponed and there's been nothing since. But yeah, I loved going uh, down to Fulham. Oh, it was such a joy. Uh, in fact, I feel I, I could probably burst into tears now. It was, was it really only five weeks ago that I last went? You know, it's, I do. I really, really miss Graham Cottage a lot. Not to oh. mention covering Dundee. Ever, you know, I follow in Dundee on the, on the club's website. I mean, I wore out my computer, you know, oh, what, what's happened? You know, what's the latest news? Retweeting pictures of the under 12s. I mean, anything to do with Dundee FC. Uh, I, was, I was nuts about it. And, and not having a job, you know, being, being retired meant you could devote as much time as you want to, uh, uh, well, obviously other things. Uh, I like doing other things, but uh, to, to football and, and studying it in a bit more detail. I've got to ask you about those two stadiums in general. We'll start, first of all, with Ends Park. Yes. What, you mentioned you, you went there when you were eight and, and you yeah. were dropped off and then picked up. What are your yeah. memories of Dens Park as a stadium? Because oh, yes. one of the few stadiums that are, is really old school in Scottish football. It is. It is. I'm, I'm still very, very proud of our main stand with the, you know, the V shape, uh, which is unique. Uh, designed, funnily enough, the stand at Fulham was designed by the same fella, Archibald Leach. Uh, the great, probably the, the greatest football architect, I would say. Um, and uh, it, I'm very proud of the V-shape uh, stand. And uh, I used to look down on it. When, when I first went, uh, I used to stand at the top of the Provi. The Provi was the cop, I suppose. In English terms, you would call it a cop. You know, a great big shale terrace that went, I thought it went up into the sky, you know, because I was only wee. But uh, it, it seemed to me like gargantuan, um, you, you know, bigger than New Camp or anything. But of course, it, it probably wasn't. But I used to go walk all the way right up to the top of that. So I've got a great panoramic view of the ground with uh, the V-shaped stand on my left. Uh, the other three, when I first started going, the other three sides were open. And then after... We won the league in 62. I think it was about a year later that we, that the, the club in its wisdom and generosity built cover on the opposite side. But of course, with the addition of the Shankly and the Cox in, 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 uh, in uh, more recent decades, uh, it's covered on all four sides. In terms of memories of Dundee, you've watched your team lift the league title, which for many yep. fans growing up now, it feels like a real dream, to be honest with you. Yeah, it was. Like? It was uh, it was a well. It was the best day of my football life, without 
a shadow of doubt. I can remember a lot about it. I was 14, uh, 14 and uh, 16, 14 and a half, because I, uh, I was due to celebrate my 15th birthday in August 1962. And that wasn't a bad old month either, by the way. Or it wasn't a bad old period for our club. But yeah, it was, a, 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 it was late April. It was about three weeks later than now two to three weeks later than now yet it was a beautiful beautiful day a sunny day and uh um uh, 25,000 of us went to Muirton Park set the ground record for St Johnston's old ground for the final day where we we really only needed to draw I think uh to to win the title but we beat them I'm afraid they made us angry the, their attitude was they were desperate to stay up, you see, St. Johnston. And they, uh, they kicked our, one of our most skillful players, the 38-year-old Gordon Smith, early in the game. And I've I never discussed this with the surviving players, <laughs> a couple of whom are, are friends of mine, but I bet that annoyed them, you know? And uh, so they went out and they just battered St. Johnston, basically. They gave him what they deserved. And they're 3-0 and, and they were relegated that day. And... Um, do you know who was in the St. Johnston team, Callum? See no. How... Okay, I'll give you a clue. He was, um, uh, later became a very famous manager. Sir Alex? Correct. <laughs> relegated. I saw him relegated. <laughs> Brilliant. I never had the, all the time I worked in uh, with, with football managers, I never had the guts to remind them about that. But I think I would now. I'd probably need a couple of beers first. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, I saw Sir, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. He wasn't nineteen, nineteen-year-old. He was just playing Alex Ferguson, and uh, he still complained. Though he complained about some decision, you know, he he, he got a ball in the net, and he claimed uh, he claimed that there was no foul. The referee chalked it off, and he, he so he claimed he could have controversy even playing for St Johnson as a nineteen-year-old boy, and he he never changed. Thank God. We mentioned earlier on as well, Craven Cottage. Um, uh -huh. What's that like as a ground? Because I've, I've visited it, not for a match, I visited it um, in a tour and oh, it, just, it just left an incredible impression on me. I just yeah. love the whole nature were, of were it. They, were the people very nice to you? Very hospitable? Yes. Uh -huh. it's, that's Fulham. You know, it is just the loveliest football club. At the moment, um, it's three-sided because the... Uh, Probably the least attractive of the stands, the, it used to be called the Eric Miller, the Riverside stand, in other words, it's now been demolished and it's going to be replaced by some real state-of-the-art uh, stand which is going to be used seven days a week because it's, it's got the, one of the most lovely views in the whole of London. And um, uh, it's, it's even a swimming pool in it, believe it or not, an outdoor swimming pool in it um, because it's uh, part of its least uh, health club. Uh, so and the restaurants again everything overlooking the river or the pitch i suppose but um that stand will increase our capacity to twenty-eight thousand. but it will be quality capacity they can charge a lot for that and i hope that sitting in the poor stand opposite the johnny haynes that that will help to subsidize my season ticket <laughs> my old age pensioner's season ticket but it's uh, it, it it's going to be a fantastic ground it already is i mean where i sit um in the old fashioned stand which which will never be changed because it's grade 2 listed um 
Dan Stan should be as well, in my opinion, but that's another story. But um, in the old stand where I sit, it's, it's not got the best knee room, you know, because uh, it was built for, for people, when people were smaller, 120 years ago. And, um, and, and if you look to your right, you see the Hammersmith end, the sweep of that Hammersmith end, which is where the hardcore fans, if, if there is such a thing at Fulham, uh, where they sit. And it's great. And I'll tell you that another thing about Fulham that I love and that I miss uh, is the build-up to the match. I don't know what the music is, but they do a lovely, clever build-up that just makes you more and more excited and the fans start clapping and all that. It's, some people call it corny. We, they give us uh, clackers, you know, which I'm not, to be quite honest, between ourselves, I'm not sure about the clackers, but it does add to the atmosphere. And, it, you know, the teams always walk out to a... To, they know they're going to be in for a match. It's, it's a really, it's a, just a lovely place. And as you say, I, I didn't, I knew what the answer to your question, to my question I asked you, were they hospitable to you? I knew what the answer would be. They're just the lovely people. Um, and they always have been. It's funny, it's, it's not changed under Fayed, who's a god, by the way, at Craven Cottage, an absolute god. There, it, who else could have got away with erecting a statue to Michael Jackson. I mean, who else? But they, they forgave him that because he was, the, he was the best owner a club could ever have. He just was generous and generous and he just, whatever Fulham FC needed, he provided. And um, he'll be loved there until the day he, he dies. And, uh, and after, um, I must say, uh, whatever, you know, some, it might be a controversial character to some, but yeah, Fired was good. Um, the new guy is a guy called Shad Khan and his son Tony. Uh, they're uh, certainly Shad's based in uh, 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 Jacksonville, Florida, where he owns the Jaguars. Yeah. And uh, um, his son seems to be the more hands-on one. He had a, a bit of a false start, I think, you know, made some terrible signings or at least oversaw some terrible signings uh, to prepare us for the Premier League. We bought, oh God, I've never seen so many duds. I mean, how could you buy the five worst players in the world? But he did. I mean, it was ridiculous. I paid 150 million for them. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say maybe not the worst in the world, but it was it was unbelievable. We couldn't believe it because you're supposed to strengthen your team when you go up, not weaken it. That's what <laughs> we did. <laughs> but no, no, I mean you know you live and learn, and uh, the, the signings uh, for this season and please God may it could uh, end. Um, the signings for this season have been much much better. One of the players I loved watching at Fulham over the years um, was been Dimitar Berbatov joined the club. Just such an effortless footballer. What was he like to watch? No, I mean uh, he, he's he's a beautiful footballer. Um, he 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 was really he's a stylist, you know. A lot of people, um, a lot of the, there's a certain class of footballers who are arrogant and very proud of that arrogance. And they insist on playing football their way or not at all. I mean, for a long, long time, I did, when I was uh, sort of more or less at the height of my career, I did the only interview with Eric Cantona. And he admitted to me that sometimes he didn't score tap-ins because they'd spoil his, um, they'd somehow conflict with his way of playing the game. Bergkamp didn't like tap-ins. 
Um, I bet Zlatan's missed a few tap-ins because he wanted to score with a flourish. Um, uh, I, I mean, and Berbatov for me was one of those. He'd rather score 12 worldies in a season, which he could easily do, um, than 25 tap-ins. That, that was my impression of him. Yes, fantastic player. In terms of, let's talk about your love of the game again, just from the start. Who was your first footballing hero as such? Well, there were two, um, obviously, uh, Dundee players. Although I did have a, a, another one. Uh, I mentioned the Spurs double team. They were often on TV, um, uh, Scott Sport and things like that. You know, the, the TV programs, sports programs on Scottish TV. Uh, Spurs just around the time of the double team, there seemed to be highlights of Spurs on the telly every Saturday night at the, in the last section of the programme, after you'd seen the Scottish game, they'd show, and now highlights from England's game of the day, and it was always Spurs. And so I developed a love, not of the Scots, um, Bill Brown, even though he's Dundee, boy, the goalkeeper, uh, John White, the late John White, and, and Dave Mackay. Well, uh, although I admired the Scots, but my, my favourite was the Welshman, Cliff Jones, who was, uh, he's a friend of mine now, I see him from time to time, he's in fantastic health. And uh, he, he was just, he was everything I wasn't. He was fast, he was brave, uh, he was brilliant, and he scored goals. And I used to pretend I mean, if he'd seen my attempts at imitating him, he would probably sue me in the old Bailey or something. But he was, he was just such a hero. So Cliff Jones definitely was was one. But my two main heroes were two Dundee players, the nine and our nine and ten, Alan Kilzean and uh, Alan Cousin. Um, uh, Cousin was very underrated, I think. If 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 anybody Dundee supporter or otherwise or student of Scottish football. Because that Dundee team was, was and, and it's not just me saying it, you know, noted scholars of the game have said this, that Dundee team was able to be discussed in the same breath as the Lisbon Lions uh, in terms of the style and the quality of the football played. Um, and Alan Cousin was the most underrated. And if you watch our greatest performance of that 61-62 season when we won the league, uh, which was a 5-1 victory at, over a, a really top Rangers team at uh, Ibrox with Jim Baxter, Ian McMillan, you know, all of their greats, Ralph Brand, I mean, oh, all of them, Davey Wilson. Um, and we beat them 5-1 and Gilzean scored four. But Alan Cousin, he, on the extended highlights, you watch what he does. He drops deep and he, he, he wins the ball and he designs the game. He carries you from uh, uh, a little like Gascoigne could do this. You could take the ball and explode up the pitch. And, carry, and suddenly, instead of in being in midfield, you're on the opponent's box. And that was what Cousin did week in, week out, as well as scoring 15 to 20 goals a season. So he was, he was also a classics master at Aloha Academy and a uh, very intelligent guy very self-effacing, no ego at all, um, and probably never even noticed that he didn't get as much credit as Gilly. But I suppose Gilly, who I got to know towards the end of his, the last 10 years of his life, and he became a hero as a man, as well as, uh, as a footballer. I mean, Gilly was probably 
the greatest player that ever played for Dundee, you know, um, uh, and uh, just a fantastic man. I, I had the privilege of sitting next to him at a, a reunion of a, a title-winning team. Unfortunately, most of the boys have gone now, but there, there were quite a few of them there, and, and I was sitting next to Gilly because I had to give a, a, a short speech, and obviously he did. Um, and uh, with the, the, the MC, I think it was Jim Duffy, uh, who you'll know well. And uh, Jim uh, just said, I got a bit of house, at the beginning of the evening, he said, just a little bit of housekeeping. All of our stars of, of, of yesteryear will sign your, your menus and, and do all that. Nothing will go unsigned, don't you worry. Um, but all we ask is that during the meal, if uh, everybody just keeps to the table and then as soon as the meal's over, you know, whatever you want signed will be signed, I promise, you know. So the usual thing. But uh, just as we were about to eat, this little guy appears sort of hovering behind Gilly. And I thought, oh, I hope he doesn't get into trouble. I hope he's not looking for an autograph. And uh, he said... Um, he was sort of wearing an anorak or something, I can't remember. But he said to Gilly, um, he said, Mr. Gilzine, can, can, I, can I have a word? And uh, he said, yeah, of course, son. Uh, he said, I'm, uh, and I'm making this name up, I can't remember what the name was. I'm uh, uh, John MacDonald. He said, Willie, Willie MacDonald's son. He, rem he says, you're not from uh, Cooper Angus. He remembered him. He said, oh, how's your, uh, your dad's sister, Betty, or whatever. He remembered every, and he said, uh, now, I heard a couple of years ago she wasn't too well. Oh, she's fine now, Mr. Gilzine, thank you very much. And he spoke to this lad for about 20 minutes, asking, 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 not sort of, you know, talking about himself at all. That's exactly what he was like. And, uh, oh, just a wonderful human being and of course a great player uh, I mean uh, if 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 we were if Gilly was here now um, and we were to have a discussion who's the best attacking head, header of a ball most creative header of a ball in the world we'd be talking Cristiano Ronaldo and Alan Gilsey that's how good he was uh, wonderful Ian, uh, Jimmy Greaves said he was the best player that ever played with him and, and, and he became a different player. He was our goal scorer. He scored 53 goals in one season, 53 goals in all competitions. But uh, when he went to Spurs, because they had Chivers initially and then Jimmy Greaves, he realized he was going to have to fit in with their styles because Jimmy was a poacher the way Gilly had been at Dens. So he became more like an Alan Cousin. He would drop a couple of yards off, turn, spray you know keep do the creative stuff thread people in still scored 20 a season but uh just uh, changed to fit in with the team so as a player he was you know if it hadn't been for you know people like dennis law and, and so on and uh well and anyone who played for rangers or celtic you know um, and you know, who got priority over a, a Dundee player, or even, a, you know, he would have, oh, he, he would have been worth a hundred caps. You know, there have been people that have got 75 that <laughs> just weren't in the same league. 
Miss Gilly. We don't produce players that good now. But uh, although I'm happy about little Billy Gilmore, what do you think of him? Well, I think I think um, he's a very impressive player, and what I really like about him is for not to sort of stereotype Scottish players, but I love the fact that he wants a ball in any situation. I feel that we don't produce a lot of players like that. Do you know, he, he looks as if he's been brought up at La Masia in Barcelona, doesn't he? That's, he looks as if that's where he had his education. Uh, we've got, uh, perhaps not quite on the same level, but we've got very good player of that type at uh, Dens Park, uh, Finlay Robertson. Um, if you get the chance to see him, I would, I, would, I would recommend it. He's only about 17, 17 and a half now. Uh, came into the team when he, before he was 17, while well, he was still 16. Um, and he's being used carefully by James McPake, unfortunately, too carefully now because we can't uh, see him at all. But uh, Finley Robertson's another player who has just football in his heart, you know, and loves, uh, you know, receiving, giving, and, and loves, to, loves to play with the ball. You know, you'll never see him lump the ball up the field or anything like that. And uh, It's great that we're producing. We, could, we must be doing something right in the national coaching. Uh, set up if we're producing um, players like them and, and of course the hope is that they will become role models for the you know at, 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 you know young Scots will watch Billy Gilmore and try and play that way and and, and the, the kids in the Dundee setup will say oh, I want to be like Finlay Robertson so um, yeah there, there are green shoots of recovery I think uh, Callum I, I, I don't know if you get that impression going around the grounds you see much more Scottish football than I do. Do you think there are a little what young players coming through here and there? I think there are. Um, I'm really impressed as well by the young player um, Scott Banks, who was at Dundee United and then went to Crystal Palace. He's went yes. back, he's came back up on loan to to Alloa. And what I liked mm. about him was I got to see him briefly in the game at Capelo when it was it was mm. Alloa for Morton for, and he just what I loved about him is he'll take, as you said he'll take the ball. And he, he mm. won't give it away cheaply. He'll try and be inventive. Mm. And the best thing about him and this, the two players you've mentioned there in Robertson and Gilmore, whenever he gave the ball away, the head didn't go down. It was just right, shoulders up, let's go again. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that really if, impresses me. It's great if we're producing, uh, you know, that, that type of player. I, I gather that was a sensational game, by the way. The, uh, oh, unbelievable. Al- Morton. I, I, I mean, I, I'd like to see more of Alawa. We've, we've actually done well against them this season. Um, results-wise, um, but uh, McPake uh, obviously loves the way uh, Peter Grant uh, gets his team to play football, football, football. And uh, um, yeah, I heard that was a an eight-goal, an eight-goal thriller. Yeah, oh, absolutely was. And some of the quality of the goals that day were brilliant as well. Mm-hmm. And something mm-hmm. I'm interested to ask you about, actually, a big character yep. linked to Dundee who's back at the club in Gordon Strachan. Um, is that something you think can only be a positive, having someone of that expertise in and around the club? I think it's not just a positive, but a necessity. Um, the, the atmosphere around Dens Park, the, the wonderful people that work there, and I just pray that um, already we were having to make economies, I, I gather, in terms of staffing, um, even before COVID-19 came along. So, I mean, I can just only hope and pray for the, uh, that, that, that we'll be able to keep as many of our, as much of our infrastructure as, as we would like. But um, 
I think Gordon was important. Is you know is uh, that effervescent personality that he's got quite apart from his experience, which is obviously the main reason we want him in his experience, his knowledge, and his drive to create a club from the bottom, to create a club organically. But he's also brought a little bit of fresh thinking, a bit of you know a bit of uh, upbeatness. Uh, to the to a club which has taken quite a lot of uh, punches over the last few years, so uh, decades, in fact. Um, so I think that was a necessity. We also needed um, a, a, a director of football, someone who could um, organise the our ability to make our own players. I saw the youth team about a couple of years ago, including Finlay Robertson, and I thought our future's in great hands, but it's very rare that you can produce six first team, you know, like the class of 92. How often does that happen? Um, it, and, and so it, it looks as if Finley and maybe another one or two um, will come out of that. But so we needed to improve even on that level. And we brought uh, Stephen Wright came in and then Gordon. And uh, I think we've got... Uh, we, well, I just, as I say, I just hope that we have the resources after this crisis to continue this policy because there is no other policy. I mean, we're not going to be able to buy Charlie Cook like we did in the 1960s or do anything uh, as as wonderful as that. Um, so we're, we're either an academy uh, or, or we're nothing. And I think most clubs in Scotland are, are the same, aren't they? Absolutely. Something I'm desperate to talk to you about, of course, is yep. your sports writing and in particular your appearances on Sunday Supplement over the years. <laughs> I'm not just saying this because you're on, but for me on Sunday Supplement growing up, you were always, for me, the voice of reason as such. Um, you've oh, got distinctive... I, honestly, Callum, I'm not being falsely modest, but I think I was. And I couldn't, I'd never understand why... Um, Sorry, I'm not being immodest. I'm not. I'm trying not to be immodest, but do you know what? I could never understand that I would say something forthright, and it would be either the late great Brian Woolnow or Neil Ashton in in later years. They'd always be patronising me, or saying, uh, you know, they'd be saying things like, "Oh, why don't you tell us what you really think?" or something. And I felt like saying, "Well, do you want me to talk mealy mouth rubbish or something like that?" Would you prefer it if I just talk uh, drivel? Or do you want me to tell you what the actual facts are um, as I see them? So, yeah, I did feel often when I was on that program that I was batting for people like you, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. Uh, and, and against all this media tide, you know. Um, I mean, one thing that people get un very unfairly wrong about the media, and, and you, you'll be got close enough to, to know this, uh, the idea that the media is some uh, united voice, as if, we, you know, all 4,000 journalists in Britain have a, a breakfast time video conference to decide <laughs> what their agenda is, you know. But, I mean, there is no media agenda, but uh, the, 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 the general... I always felt a little bit of a fish out of water in journalism is that I, in the, I wasn't really interested in breaking news. I, you know, I, I, it was a vehicle to get into football and to try and influence football. And the uh, one thing that I did, um, and this is through, through a man called Ernie Walker, who for many years was the highly influential secretary of the Scottish FA. And 
one day I was coming back from a, a Champions League game or a European Cup game uh, in, let's say, Madrid, Barcelona, something like that. And uh, in the queue for the boarding passes, it was Ernie Walker, who had been the official uh, observer at, at whatever the game was, Bayern against Real Madrid. I mean, God, what a privilege it was to go to games like that. It was fantastic. <laughs> Even though it was tough, the reporting was tough, you know. But uh, the atmosphere, you know, to actually be in these great stadiums. But anyway, morning after, complete with the obligatory hangover, I'm standing in the queue and... Ernie Walker says, what did you think of the game last night? I said, it was great. But he says, that goal was off, uh, was onside and, and it wasn't given. I said, yeah. I said, but that drives me mad. For me, in those days, you had to be behind. If you were level, you were offside. I said, it drives me bloody mad because it's, people make great runs and the linesman can just see a blur and he puts his hand up because he has to, because the guy might be level. Yeah. I said, if the law was changed to make a level onside, what a difference it would make. And he says, do you know, why don't you put that in writing and send it to me at the Scottish FA? So I did, I drafted an amendment to the law and it never came back to me. And at the next international board meeting, FIFA changed the law, onside was level. But they missed out my, the last clause of my redraft, which was, it said, uh, uh, le it must uh, level in whole or in part. So in other words, it was the daylight rule. So even if you're stud or the or your heel was level that was level under my draft well they struck out that phrase and the offside law has caused continued controversy ever since and and it's my if they'd used all of the provisions i put in the offside law would have been oven ready for the uh, var era so that was the one time in my life I did something bloody constructive, Gal, and uh, I'm very, very proud of that. So, and, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to affect the game. Um, yeah, I quite like writing. I liked elegant writing, same way as I like elegant footballers, but uh, I wanted to affect the game. I wanted to be in it. I wanted to affect it. I wanted to go to work here in the crowd, noise build up in a wonderful stadium. And, uh, and, and and luckily I had that. But I've forgotten the question you asked. You did ask a question. <laughs> it was just um, about the Sunday supplement, what I was saying in terms oh, that, of... Right. Yeah, that, <clears> that. In yeah. terms of talking about football, you've got a very distinctive voice, which always helps, I believe, when you're watching mm. a programme to, to stand out. Yes. Um, but something yeah. that I always liked about you, and I'm not just saying this because you're on, you get a lot of journalism. Don't, don't, don't um, mind if it's nice, Callum. I'll take it all day and all night. Yeah. <laughs> With, with journalism and at times with the Sunday supplement, um, yeah. I've not watched a lot of it recently, I must be honest. Um, what frustrates me as a fan watching it is no. I'm not a particular big fan of the sort of tittle tattle stories of a so-called source at Club A said this no. about Club B, because I just don't feel there's any value no. in that. And when you were no. on, what I quite liked was if you got a question about Mourinho or, or Ferguson or Wenger, you would yeah. answer it 
eloquently rather than trying to to get down the sort of yeah. sources that the club said this yeah. and said that. Yeah, so so often I said uh, I would answer something like, well, I, I honestly don't know, but what they should have done was blah, blah, blah. So in other words, I would try and comment only on things that I know about, which is my opinion of what yeah. it should be. In other words, we should have been a filter, uh, a bullshit filter, if you like. You know, when the managers, of course, the manager's not going to tell the truth at his press conference. So we should be the bullshit fil fil filter who said, Mourinho... Uh, was clearly uh, uh, trying to protect, let's say, Joe Cole, whoever the player might be, when he said he, he was the best player on the field because he yeah. was rubbish, you know, that sort of thing. And, and uh, obviously he would try and use more elegant language, but you, basically that, that was what you were there to, for, to be a sort of referee, basically. But uh, in other words, someone who, who sorts out the, the wheat from the chaff of, of an argument. And, and that's, that's what I, I quite like doing. But they didn't seem to be interested in that. They were much more interested in, and, and sometimes fans are like this as well. You know, they'll say to you, um, uh, now you must have the inside track on this. And I, I just say to them, no, if I knew anything, it'd go in the paper, honestly. I wouldn't hold anything back. Um, and, and, and that, was, uh, that was the case. I was never really interested in breaking a story. I, was, I, would, I would much rather have changed the offside law, you know, slightly, than uh, had 100 uh, scoops. Uh, apart from anything else, I was useless. I, I didn't know how to go about news gathering. I, I, I mean, in terms of the techniques of journalism, um, I was hopeless. The, the only technique that I had was, was writing. But uh, in, in terms of journalism, I wouldn't have been able to, uh, 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 you know, I'd struggle to cover a village fete or a, or a wedding. <laughs> because I never had any training in being a reporter. Uh, I just, uh, I, I went straight into it through force of circumstances. You've had some incredible debates over the years. Henry Winter and Neil Custis, Sean Custis to name a few. What was it like working with yeah. people that have got big personalities that then? Ah, uh, well, it was great. There were, the, I, I, you see, I liked uh, Neil Custis, for example. Uh, I love his big mouth attitude to it. Uh, I, I, I love, you know, you know where you stand with people like that. And um, I, like, I like him. I, I admire Martin Samuel. I'm a wee bit, I don't take him on, you know. I, uh -huh. I, I take on Custis, you know in a verbal battle. I wouldn't take on Samuel, you know, he's uh, too dangerous a beast, you know. Uh, I wouldn't have taken on Huey McIlvany. Well, I, well, I would. I'd have got a black eye if I tried. But I mean, <laughs> honestly, it was like that. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't really say this, but he, he, was, he was up for a Barney. He was well in his 80s. And he wouldn't have, you know, he just stepped outside if you'd, if you'd agreed to it. I mean, he, he, he was so funny, but he was um, but a great man. I would never, have, would never have taken him on. Wouldn't have dreamed of it because, you know, verbally he could just uh, tie you up and throw you in the bin, you know. But um, um, yeah, the uh, a lot of the ones, but Henry definitely. I mean, I. I'm never slow to remind Henry that when he started, he was number he was he was number six when I was the number one on the uh, on the independent, 
and he had to design his own column to get in the paper. You know, he designed this little column at the end, which is what I did actually at first when I was at the, on the Guardian. And and Henry did the same sort of thing. He designed a, a sort of quirky column that, that that was in the Independent, and everything grew from there. He impressed so much there that he got offered the um, the Telegraph job, and you know, he's just gone from strength to strength since that. But he's uh, Again, Henry Henry would be one that I I, I wouldn't uh, I would I, I might take on in an argument, but not face on. You know, <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd be respect. I'd, I'd, I'd approach him from a respectful distance. But no, they're 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 great. And what I've found uh, all through my career, right from the start, was that the really big ones, the greats, were were tremendous colleagues. Um, even Hugh, I worked with him on The Observer. He was the chief sports writer, obviously. I was the football correspondent. So there's a little bit of, you know, who gets this job at the cup final and who has to do the quotes and, you know, all this, all this kind of thing. There's sometimes little crossovers, like with the, if, if, he, if he'd gone to the Wimbledon tennis, the tennis correspondent, those might have been put out of joint. Never had a problem with McIlvaney. All the time I was at The Observer. Never had a problem. Never. There was a wonderful journalist called Ken Jones that I worked with on The Independent. And he was a big personality. Never had a problem with him. When I was starting off in the game, um, McIlvaney and a bloke called Ian Wooldridge were the, probably the top two in Britain. Uh, Wooldridge was, he used to quietly take me aside and offer words of encouragement, you know? And he was huge. He didn't have to do that. Um, Oh, I, I mean, I could name lots and lots of them that, that commentators as well, who, who were kind and gave a hand. And some of the biggest names, Brian Moore, I can remember being very, very nice. And, uh, and uh, yeah, the, the, usually, usually the big ones um, were, were, were very, very helpful. Um, Brian Glanville. I mean, at times you had to sw swat him away, you know, he was so eager to chat to you and uh, you know well, I did have an ego does have an ego but uh, but not in terms of, but always very anxious to help young ones coming up uh, very generous spirited in that way something I'm desperate to ask you about as well is your opinion on the rise of the Premier League since 92 the money <clears throat> pardon me the money has grown year on year on year yeah is that something you think is good or do you think it's too much to an extent it's gone gone too far I think it's uh, the money is too much uh, now, um, as as you can probably see in the middle of the COVID virus, where so many people are, including the government, in my opinion, are trying to do the right thing, and um, uh, but a lot of people that you don't hear about are trying to do the right thing. Um, a lot of um, uh, you know, people who work in, in part-time jobs like domestic, you know, people who are cleaners and so on are being quietly paid to make sure, even though they can't come into your house, they're being quietly paid. So a lot of people are mucking in and it is just horrible to watch uh, the football industry. And I'm, I, I wouldn't blame players, broadcasters, uh, I, I'd blame them all uh, uh, and, and clubs. For, for not, it's a wash with money, Callum. And, and the smaller, the areas of the English game that could be more compared with uh, the Scottish game, you know, very modestly, it doesn't cost much. You know, you know what the, 
the total turnover of Greenock Morton is. You know what the total turnover of even Motherwell is. Uh, you know, and the, you know, a top, I wouldn't, wouldn't name one, but a top Premier League player in England could keep three Scottish clubs going just by himself. Absolutely. Just by docking his wages, not by giving them up, just by docking his wages. So the, the potential for doing the right thing uh, is still there, but so much has been lost. You know, so much has been lost. And uh, I, I do think that, you know, um, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think you could probably adapt that by saying that money corrupts and too much money corrupts too much. And, and that basically is the parable of football's behavior. In the last month, I mean, they're saying, oh, they're just coming to terms with it. I mean, that's tripe. The, the game's been suspended for, what, a month already? Five weeks? Something like that. They've had plenty of time. In fact, they've, no, they've not had to do anything else. They've had plenty of time to think of how they keep everybody together through this crisis. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, that it's been a, a shameful episode that people are not going to forget. And I'm not, I mean, we're going to be changed, aren't we, Callum? You and I are going, and, uh, uh, I mean, I'm thinking because it's you and me talking, but anybody listening to this, everybody in the world, the prime minister is going to be a different man uh, when, when, please God, he comes out of this. So um, it's going to change us all. But I do wonder at the moment if, our love on football, and we're here because we love football. That's why we're having this conversation. I wonder if our love of football will be quite the same as going forward as it was when we went into this crisis. I wonder I if we've been given reason to... Now, your love of Greenock Morton, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about my love of Dundee. I'm talking about our love of the big beasts mm. of the jungle, of the... The Man Cities, the Man Uniteds, the Liverpool. Liverpool taking money off the government, taking money out of your pocket and mine to pay their staff because they've been shut down. Come on. Uh, it, I, I, don't, I don't think, I think it'd be very difficult for us to feel the same way. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that the Liverpool situation, I know they've now U-turned on it, but Tottenham still haven't. And I think the thing about this is spot on from yourself. I think this was the ultimate chance for the Premier League straight away to take this on and show everyone that they were serious about helping people out further down the pyramid and, and further down the staff levels. And as you've said, they can do it now five or six weeks down the line, but it's not going to be the same. Yeah. It's not going to be the same, no. I wasn't aware that Liverpool had backtracked. Have they just changed their mind completely? They've changed their mind completely because of pressure. They've said, I think it's basically because of pressure from former players and fans. So they only announced that last night. Ah, I see. Well, I'm, I'm really delighted to hear that. And I think next to not having done it in the first place, this is the next best thing. So, yeah, fair enough. But yeah, as you rightly say, Tottenham, I think it will get better. Um, it's just that a, last, a nasty taste has been left in the mouth and uh, 
really that um, that's down to bad governance. Absolutely. And I think that's something that, as, as you've said, when, when football does come back, when society returns, I think there will be a lot of differing and changing perspectives. And I just hope mm -hmm. that these clubs like Liverpool and, and Tottenham, who are still affected by this in terms of taking the government scheme, I hope mm -hmm. they reflect on everything that's been going on. Because I, I, I said it last year, and I'm sure you would mm -hmm. agree with this. Obviously, I know there was things going on behind the scenes at Bury, but I just found it very uncomfortable that a club like Bury, who had won the FA Cup and had a rich history, were allowed to go out of business when the bottom team in the league was getting £100 million. For me, that just did not sit right at all. Yes, I think that that's, uh, that, that is a perfect example of bad governance, you know, because, uh, I, I mean, if, if Bury only provided one player for the for the Tottenham or for the bottom club Norwich say you know yep. whatever or for the Norwich of the future then it would be worth Norwich saving Berry for that purpose of keeping football top level full-time professional alive in every town um, in every town and every suburb uh, as I, I suppose Berry is probably more of a suburb than Manchester than a town, but uh, in every in every district of, of the United Kingdom, uh, it's a very valuable and very precious thing that we have, and something that Scotland and England has in in common. I always um, and I, I don't do it often, but if you go out into the hinterland behind Dundee, I'm talking about Dundee. I'm not talking about Glasgow, and you go out into hinterland and those little villages, and it. Yes, there is a, a, a signpost, you know, a road uh, sign. And it sounds like some really weird football results because the sign says Montrose 10, 4 for 4, Arbroath 6, Dundee 14. Something like, something like that. And you just suddenly realise there's league clubs in all these wee towns in, behind Dundee. Four for Arbroath, Montrose... Uh, Brechin, and uh, and these are this this is this is lovely, and 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 people uh, in other countries don't don't realise it. I mean, for example, my uh, I have a little house in France, and my nearest club is Toulouse, which unfortunately, if the season ever finishes, they'll they'll go down. So I thought, oh well, I'll uh, I'll support the next nearest team next season in in league. The next nearest team is probably in Paris. I mean, and that's a, a six hours drive. There's lots of rugby teams around. Albi, Cast, Toulouse, blah, blah, blah. But football, nothing. The near, there is one, but it's in the second division in a place called Rodez. It's about an hour and a quarter's drive. And that would have been our local, Toulouse local derby if we'd gone down. So uh, when you compare that to little Angus, where there's probably more farms than people it's, it just shows you how wonderful our footballing infrastructure is you know a hundred and how many years on from when the game grew and became a popular entertainment absolutely and something else i think will be an interesting discussion between us is because of your yeah. uh, experience watching football through m more decades than i have What's your yeah. opinion on european football in relation to the champions league versus the old european cup structure 
I like the Champions League. Uh, I must admit, I prefer it to the European Cup. Uh, the European Cup, uh, I would much rather watch uh, Real Madrid against the fourth team in England, let's say Tottenham, than the champions of Luxembourg. And a lot of games, you know, uh, in the old European Cup, it wasn't all Real Madrid against Eintracht Frankfurt or uh, great finals like that. It, a lot of the games were, you know, 10-0 and things like that. Um, I, 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 like, I definitely like the Champions League, but I think it's in, in danger of growing too, too much. Um, I particularly thought, you know, an example of this was the second group stage. Oh my God, I thought we were going to die of boredom. But um, making, you know, making it knock out after the group stage, you know, round of 32 and all that, uh, round of 16, is it? I don't know, whatever it is. Um, as, as soon as it gets to knock out, you think, right, okay, that's that rubbish out of the way. Now it is fantastic. And I, I do think, um, uh, if I remember writing in, I, I used to have a little column in the London Evening Standard. And uh, I used to love that because you'd see the uh, readers you know, on, the, on the tube and they'd look at uh, God, there's that bloke that wrote that rubbish about being saying, oh, God, the Champions League group stage. I said, Group A was Juventus, Real Madrid, but, but, but BATE Borisov and... I don't know, Linfield or something. All right, that's the top two will go through. Second group, top two will go through. Top, so I said, there's the, there's the last 16. Why bother with the group stage? <coughs> anyway, about three months later, I found myself at Parkhead. Group stage match, <coughs> Champions League, the Tony Watt match the Victor Wanyama match, the Fraser Forster match. It was one of the best nights of football I've ever seen. And um, I mean, technically, Barcelona didn't need to win it, but they played well. I mean, Forster had to, it was probably man of the match uh, before uh, Wanyama and Watt scored. Um, and I was there, I, I was there in an overspill, a press overspill section, some... Catland journalists. Now they're going to their camp now, 95,000 every week. They go to away games in Barcelona. And, and I asked them what they were saying. And they said, we're just saying, we've never seen anything like this, atmosphere like this. And they, you know, they've been to Real Madrid for the you know, Classico. They've been everywhere in the world. And they, they were saying, oh, this parkhead atmosphere different class and it was a great it was a great great night and i remember the following morning i wrote in my evening standard column i said if i ever criticize the group stage of uh, the champions league again you've got my permission to shoot me <laughs> oh brilliant <laughs> um another so, uh, yeah it was, uh, sorry yeah go on um, in terms of characters within the game who would you say have been your favourite characters to interview over the years in your role? Well, um, 
one I always, the one that always comes to mind is Jamie Carragher. He was great. I did an interview with him around the time. I don't know, it might have been a bit too long ago for you, but do, if, if, do you remember there was a great rivalry, European rivalry between Liverpool and Chelsea? Yes, yeah, so I was a couple of years. They were drawn against each other in the Champions League. And remember those games that Ida Good Johnson shot that just went wide in the last minute and all that kind of stuff. The ghost goal, Luis Garcia, and all that. Um, they were epics. I, I saw that probably all of them. And atmosphere, you know, I mean, Anfield on the night when they beat uh, Chelsea, uh, that would be up there with Parkhead against Barcelona. You know, that would be up there with the best atmospheres I've ever experienced anywhere in my life. Um, but, uh, yeah, in the, uh, uh, around that time, I've forgotten the point I was trying to make. What was it? What was, what was, what was the point I was trying to make? Jimmy Carragher. Um, oh, yes. I, I, yeah, that's right. Around that time, I just thought there's just so much to talk about in Europe with, with Jamie Carragher. They'd won the, they were the champions of, of Europe at that time. They'd won in Istanbul. So I, I just, he, he, he talks football in a way that makes you want to just work in football or just devote your life to football. He's got, really got that. This is why I'm so uh, surprised in a way and slightly disappointed that he's not a manager because he's, he is a fantastic communicator of love of football. And in fact, it might be a handicap to him if he finds that two-thirds of his squad don't love football as half as much as he does. You know, it could, it could eat, erode his soul. But he was able to talk about football in such a, a lovely way. And, and it, 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 the interview was going so well that I was sort of kind of emboldened. And I said, I said in that Champions League final in Istanbul against uh, Milan, I said, uh, yeah, when the penalty was given, I think, was it the second goal? Yep. Second Liverpool goal, the penalty, whatever. Uh, it sort of you know, helped to complete the comeback. And um, I said, you were going over at the referee and pointing at the guy who'd given away the penalty and doing a yellow card, you know, a red card. Is, when you see something like that, do you not regret it? He said, no, 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 I didn't think that was uh, bad sportsmanship. He says, this is footballers for you. I love footballers. I didn't think that was bad sportsmanship. I was just alerting, alerting the referee. And I thought, Jamie, what bullshit that is for a man who, who talk, is such a straight talker. That's rubbish. You weren't alerting the referee. You were being a bad sport. Anyway, I didn't quite put it that. It's worse than that. I was pointing at Gattuso, but I, when I saw it back on film, it was Nesta's foul. I was even pointing at the wrong man. <laughs> so, I mean, to me, that was just, when you, when, you, when, you, when you hear little stories like that, that's, that's the joy of interviewing, actually getting close to something. And in fact, while we're on that subject, I kind of, for people of my generation, the iconic, um, footballing experience was the 1970 World Cup. First World Cup in colour, greatest team ever to 
in national, the greatest national team ever to kick a football, without a question. 1970 Brazilians, Pele, Jarzinho. And uh, I went over to Brazil to write a, write a piece about why, why is Brazilian football different? In those days it was. I mean, now you can't quite tell the difference. A Brazilian football that doesn't address the ball differently the way he did. I mean, you might see certain things from a Brazilian that you wouldn't see a lot from others, like chess control, um, things like that. But by and large, a Brazilian footballer isn't different. But in those days, and this was 20, I don't know, 25 years ago, uh, Brazilian footballers were, were still different. You could tell one a mile off. And um, so I went over to Brazil to do a piece about what is it makes... Brazilian football different. And one of the people I met was Carlos Alberto, the captain, and number two, the scorer of the fourth goal in that game. Now, the thing about that fourth goal was it's the most famous goal. And yet, if they won 3-1, it'd still be the best team that ever lived. 3-1, 4-1, who cares? <laughs> so it was a, a, not a particularly meaningful goal, but everybody remembers it. Now, part of the reason for that, I think, is it was the only goal ever scored, at that time, the only goal ever scored in a World Cup final from a move of more than five passes. Maybe that's changed now, but that was, that was the truth. And it, it sort of was to do with a theory of mine that football is all about the build-up rather than just the denouement. De in other words, you know, I prefer a number 10 to Michael Owen, say, you know, uh, great, great finisher though, Michael or Gary Lineker. Great finishers though, they were, I like the creator. I mean, that's uh, all these thoughts were swilling around in my mind when I sat down with the man who scored that goal. Now, have we got time to, for me to tell you all the things he told me? Uh, or some of them. And he, I mean, the interview started a wee bit slowly. I said, Why is Brazilian football the best in the world? He said, uh, well, he said, uh, what's the best team in Africa? And at that time, it was Nigeria. I said, uh, Nigeria. He said, correct. What's the biggest country in Africa? I said, well, Nigeria is one, certainly one of the biggest, if not the biggest. He says, what's the best team in Europe? I said, well, Germany won the World Cup more than any other European team. He says, what's the biggest country in Western Europe? I said, well, Germany. He says, uh, and I'm thinking, bloody hell, I've crossed the world. I'm speaking to a man who's lifted the World Cup. And all he's doing is giving me a, a lesson in mathematics. You know, I, I, I need to hear more than this, you know. So anyway, we get talking and I finally get round to that fourth goal. And he says, uh, he says, you know, I was a good, I, I asked him about it. And he says, you know, I was a good player. I said, I, I know um, Carlos Alberto, of course. I, I mean, legend. He says, yeah, I was a good player. I, I, could, uh, I could lead. I was a leader. I said, well, obviously you must have been because you were the captain of the best team that ever played. He said, I could defend. Uh, I, I said, well, you, you were the right back of this great team. Yeah, of course you could defend. He said, I could go forward as well. I said, well, everybody knows you can go forward. He said, uh, I was quite good in the air. I, I could hold my own as a header. I could win a challenge if I had to. I said, oh, fantastic. He said, I was quick. 
He said, um, I could tackle and I could read the game. He said, there was only one thing I couldn't do. He said, I was bloody hopeless at shooting. I could not, I don't even nicely say this, but he said, I could not hit a barn door with a banjo. He said, I was useless. But what am I remembered for by the world as the guy with a brilliant shot? And he said, and the reason for that, he said, he said, because, uh, uh, yeah, it's true. If somebody had been saying to me, oh, yeah, who, who's the best marauding fullback? And you'd have to say, wow, well, I can't, uh, Carlos Alberto, you know, remember that iconic goal. He says, nah, I was hopeless. Could not burst a paper bag. Could not shoot. And uh, he said, but he said that goal was easy. He said, you could have scored that goal. He'd never seen me play, obviously, but I, I, I thought, let that one go. And uh, he said, you could have scored it. Do you know why? Because the pass from Pele was perfection. I didn't have to break my stride. I just flowed onto it. And the next thing, it was in the back of the net. Pele scored that goal. So, I mean, having that kind of insight into the into the most remembered goal ever scored in the history of the football, talking through it with the man who scored it and finding out that it was a freak. I just thought, this is what, I'm so lucky to be here, just gaining this insight into, into the game I love. In terms of books you've written, we're going to talk a wee bit more about the book on Samar on um, this week, later this week, <clears throat> a book that you... Yeah, we're, do, we're doing... Uh... You wrote a book a few years ago on Jose Mourinho, a man who has really... He's been very successful in football, but his career has sort of changed direction, if you will, in recent years. What yes. some of your experience of Mourinho through the years? Yeah, um, at the moment it feels a bit like a, the slow death of a career, mm. uh, which I'm not, I'm not happy about because I think Mourinho brought fantastic amount. You know, if he comes on the telly now, I, I don't know about you, Callum, but or, 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 or everybody who's who's listening to us, but I certainly always, you know, rivet myself to the TV to find out what he's saying, Absolutely. and still sometimes find quite a lot of it funny. And you like to laugh along with him. You know, there's a lovely, did you see his uh, little exchange with, uh, you know, Ian Abrahams, the moose from yes. Talk Sport? Do you know him? Yes. The moose is uh, the one who's got all the friends. <laughs> Happy birthday, my friend. I love it. He's, he's a great lad, actually. And um, anyway, uh, Jose. He's, he's back in football with Tottenham, back in London, which is a good thing because his family live in London and people are always better like that. And uh, uh, somebody says, uh, you know, how's it, why don't you come to Spurs? How's it being back in London? He says, it's great. He said, and then the Moose asked the question. He said, oh, wait a minute. He says, does this mean I'm going to have to listen to you twice a week? And Moose said, yeah. He says, oh, oh my God. 
such a never come back to London. I mean, that was. <laughs> you still. I mean, it's funny because he it, it wasn't digging him out. It was. It was friendly banter, you know, and. Uh, yeah, so you still like it, but I do feel that I did feel that the, the Tottenham thing would have gone better than it has. I, I think it may have done if he'd been able to keep um, his two most dangerous players, Kane and Son. Uh, but unfortunately, both uh, succumbed to injury. Um, and that would have hurt any team in the world losing to. Uh, players as important as that. On top of that, a little bit of evidence that um, uh, the great defender, Oliver Weirald, who's been, I, I would say, one of the top five centre halves in the history of the Premier League. Um, Premier League, I mean, you know, 92 onwards. Um, there's a little bit of sign that he's creaking after you know, several years of consistent. Excellence. Um, so, in a way, Jose's not been lucky. Just hope that when when the football returns, that uh, that his old spark returns. The funny thing is, you know, that I the thing that I, I worry about is if if Rui Faria was part of the was part of Jose Mourinho, you know, in the same way that Peter Taylor was part of Brian Clough and. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Murphy was part of Matt Busby. Um, you know, sometimes these number twos, they might not be great managers themselves, but they're vital to the manager. Um, they're sort of right arm. And uh, it's certainly true that, that Mourinho hasn't been consistently successful since Rui Faria parted company with him. So we'll have to see. Um, but... As I say, it does have the the feeling of a of the, the the decline of a career. Yes, I'd like to finish with a round of quick fire questions in sort of top five fashion. Who would you say are the yep. top five players you've watched in your career? Yeah. Uh, live. Yes. Uh, number one, uh, number one, Diego Maradona. Uh, the other four. Um, would be George Best. Um, Michel Platini. Uh, <laughs> you said quickfire. Um, George uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. Brilliant. Top five managers, in your opinion, of your lifetime? Well, obviously Ferguson being there. Um, I didn't actually experience, I was, on, I was a spectator on the Mancunian terraces when Matt Busby was a manager. I would, uh, so am I allowed to include him? Yes, of course. Am I allowed to include I would say Matt Busby would be my number one. Um, the others uh, would be um, Alex Ferguson, obviously. Um, who recreated Matt Busby, really did everything Matt Busby did, um, albeit without having to cope with quite the um, obstacles that Matt did. Um, Jock Steen, um, 
I, I, can I can I put um, roll Shankly and Paisley together? Yes. Am I allowed to roll them into one package? Yes. I know it's cheating, but uh, that definitely. Um, and then I suppose it's a toss-up between Mourinho and Guardiola. Um, hard to separate those two, but I suppose I suppose Guardiola. I think um, some of these young ones coming through at the moment are going to be fantastic, like Nagelsmann and, and people like that. Uh, these very young career coaches. I think it's um, it's it, we're going to have uh, a lot more career coaches, you know, coming through. Did I give you five managers? Sorry, this is supposed to be quick fire, and I'm rambling. Sorry. No, you did, yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of what would you say your top five favourite football stadiums? Well, Dens Park, obviously. Uh, uh, Camp Nou. Uh, Bernabeu. Uh, God, I liked Villarreal. It's in among. It's in the houses, you know. <laughs> Did like Villarreal. Um, <clears throat> the most scenic, undoubtedly, is in the National Stadium in Vaduz, Liechtenstein. It's completely surrounded by ice-capped mountains. Very beautiful. But now, seriously, we've got Barcelona, Real Madrid, Dundee, obviously, for personal reasons. Uh, Parkhead. Parkhead, I would say. I love Parkhead. Um, and uh, Tottenham Hotspur's new stadium. Brilliant. I'm, I'm not trying to cause controversy by asking you this. Five least favourite <laughs> stadiums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's quite... Yeah, the first one's easy. Olympic Stadium, Rome. Uh, wonderful city, but it, it's bloody miles to walk there. And the taxi drivers never seem to want to go there because it was, it, it, you know, certainly at the time that I knew the place, time, you know, when Gaza was in Italy and, and you used to go to Italy a lot. And there was always hooliganism in that beautiful park around it. And you'd, smell the tear gas and oh you think come on it's not it's not worth it and then you get in and the stadium's so far from the pitch um and there's honestly I don't know what it holds but you can put forty five thousand in it and it looks like it's empty um for the same reason uh and, and to me it's not a football stadium at all west ham the london stadium west ham i hate it absolutely hate that it's in a, it's in a really it's where the Olympics were, and you'd think, you know, that'd be a good, you know, good legacy and all that. It's a slum. It's terrible. It's, it's not, there's no beauty. There's nothing. There's no buildings that you'd want to see again. All the buildings look out of place, as if they were just stuck there. There's no sense of uh, harmony around the place, and and the, and and the ground. It's just terrible. You're just too far. It's, it, it reminds me actually of the. Of the Olympic Stadium in Rome. What else is there that grounds do I not like? Uh, <laughs> well, I've got a bit of OCD, Callum, so I have a real problem with Newcastle because I don't know if you're familiar with Newcastle, but it's got these towering stands like the camp now. And then 
they weren't able to keep building it. So it, it sort of stopped. So it's not symmetrical. And because of my OCD, I always used to find myself bringing the stand all the way around so that it all went nice and symmetrical. I could, and I'm, I sometimes missed incidents because I was trying to rebuild the stadium in my mind to make it nice and neat and cure my OCD. But that's a little bit too much information. Um, and it's no fault of Newcastle United. Um, oh, other, I love football grounds. I, I can't think of too many. Oh, yeah, any football ground where a, where a European final is, is Seville, when Celtic played Porto. What a dump that was. It was uh, uh, Sainsbury's home base on the outside of town. Honestly, it was a terrible place. Istanbul, where they had uh, where the great match, Liverpool-Milan, was played. Dump on the outside of the town. So there's one, two, three, four. And if you want a fifth, uh, uh, not Tanadice. I love Tanadice. Okay, this is between ourselves, right? But I prefer Tanadice derbies to Dens ones because you get 14,500 and Tanadice is actually a better um, acoustic ground than Dens, much better. So I love the Tanadice derbies more than ours. But as I say, that's, uh, that's going to get me shot um, <laughs> by my mates if I've got any left after saying that. <laughs> I'll give you five non-football questions. First one, um, what's your favourite band? Or musician? Yeah. Uh, my favourite band is... Uh, if I was only allowed one, it would be ACDC. Um, uh, if you only allowed me one album, it would be If You Want Blood, You've Got It. 11 tracks, all brilliant. Um, um, uh, how many bands am I allowed? Five, did you say? Yeah, you or, 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 or artists. Uh, yeah, Rolling Stones. Um, I listened to a hell of a lot of Rolling Stones and I love the Rolling Stones. Brown Sugar be one of my favourite songs of all time. Um, also, I, I would, uh, I listened to a lot of, fair bit of Bob Dylan, but uh, probably above Bob Dylan would be, right, okay, Callum, now you've got, if you laugh here, I'll be very disappointed in you, okay? You mustn't laugh, okay? Status quo. Good choice. Come on. It's a little smart. You like them? Yes. Oh, fantastic. Well, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that just for effect. I really do love status yeah, quo. Yeah, I think they're very good. Always have done. That. Good humoured. Uh, you know what you're going to get. Don't mess about. Good. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you because a lot of people laugh at me when I say that, but uh, I'm quite serious about it. So we've got status quo. We've got ACDC. We've got Dylan. We've got the Rolling Stones. If I need one more for more chilled moments, it would probably be Dire Straits. Uh, I had the tremendous privilege of being around a dinner table last year with uh, Mark Knopfler. Of, of dire straits and uh, it turns out not not only a, a very lovely bloke by the way he didn't talk about himself at all but obviously he answered questions that i asked him and um he wanted to be a started off wanting to be a journalist he started off as a journalist uh, martin offler and 
The other thing that, I've, that I didn't know about him was that he's a mad keen Newcastle United fan. Loves his football. Absolutely loves his football. So, um, actually, you, you can really shoot me down for this, but I'll tell you what happened. A friend of mine is a member of the Garrett Club, right? And he's got so all these famous friends. So there was four of us around the table at the Garrett Club. There's me, him. He used to be a football agent, by the way. Great lad. Uh, Martin Offler and Sir Tom Courtney, one of the greatest English actors of all time. And Tom Courtney is football mad. He's crazy about Hull City. So were players from Hull City and Newcastle United. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, honestly, it's surreal. And it sounds like I'm name dropping, and I am. But uh, I'll never forget that. I, I just sort of thought, hang on a minute, Paddy. Are you really here? Is this really you sitting here with these great people? But it was, uh, we ended up talking football. And, and it's amazing. I, I shouldn't think there's, there's one activity in the world with the possible exception of popular music. Uh, that, that a group of four could talk about all night, you know, but we did talk about a lot, a lot about football. What would you say are your five favourite places to visit in the world that don't have to be football related? No. Uh, well, I, um, my little house in France, it's only a little house, but it's got beautiful views of, um, of a valley, of the treetops going down to a valley and right now at the moment uh, I mean as soon as this broadcast is over I shall probably sort of snivel into my hanky or tissue as you're supposed to have these days but because I'm missing it so much usually by this time of the year I go over for a weekend or something like that um, I love I just love the village and I love the the way of life and the tranquility of it all. And funnily enough, I'm in London now and I've got tranquility to burn. But anyway, um, that would be one of that, that village of Najak in an hour and a half north of Toulouse would be one of my favorite places in the world. Um, I liked, uh, can, can I give a country? Yeah, of course. Uh, in Europe, I, I, I adore Slovenia. Uh, because it's a country that's got so many different things. It's even got an Adriatic coast, uh, which is about 22 miles, with a beautiful little seaside town called Piran, but Venetian, because it's opposite the, you know, the Adriatic. It's, you, 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 on a clear day, you can actually see Venice from this from this coast. So, uh, but it's got also it's got the lush sort of midlands where those uh, Lipizzaner horses, you know, those white horses come yes. from. Uh, it's got a lake at the, Lake Bled at the top uh, with skiing places. I don't ski, uh, I don't ski myself, but uh, it's got skiing. And it's got a, a very beautiful um, capital called Ljubljana, which is uh, uh, art, with a lot of great uh, art, art Nouveau architecture in it. And, um, and probably the greatest concentration of, of pretty girls that I think I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, so it's got, it ticks a few boxes, doesn't it? 
another country uh, that I really loved was Vietnam. Uh, I went there, I had the privilege of going there. As, it was probably the first long trip I did after, um, uh, after retiring. And I, I loved uh, the food. I would say the food was probably number one. It's the best food I've ever eaten in my life. It's very clean and very fresh and uh, wholesome. You you don't sort of feel stuffed after eating it, and yet the flavour is great. Um, and also the the um, contrast between the cities. We visited, um, I think, four cities in eight days, and they were all different and all fantastic. So I love loved Vietnam. Uh, I loved uh, I love. Um, Costa Brava in Spain. Um, uh, it's been tourist area for 200 years probably, but still not been spoiled. You know, it's still still lovely. So I like that. <coughs> the towns like Cadiz, um, what's it called, Tamarillo. I mean, these tiny little beaches which are just heavenly, where you can eat wonderful fish. Uh, you know, without breaking your budget. Um, so, how many have I got? One more, one more. Have I got one more? It's not Dundee. Um, I do love Dundee, though. I do, I do love Dundee. But uh, where would it be? It'd have to be somewhere hot because I hate cold weather now. Can't bear cold weather. Uh, it'd have to be somewhere hot. And it, oh, I'll tell you where. Uh, Santa Barbara in California. Oh. It's a small town. It's got a small. Have you been there? No, it just it sounds incredible. As soon as you say California, uh, it, it is. It's. Um, I did. Uh, I love trains, and I, I did uh, last year. I, I was on a train from. Uh, where was it? Uh, we went through Los Angeles. I, I can't remember what town I started. Oh, I started at uh, San Jose. Not San Jose. Um, oh, for heaven's sake. Uh, oh, it's San Diego. San Diego. And got the train up through. Um, the train actually goes into downtown Los Angeles and then comes out again and carries on up the coast and uh, st uh, stopped off at Santa Barbara. And it was so different from any other US city that I'd ever been. It's a very small town. It's a big population, but it, it, it feels very small. The stations we, they're like, uh, the stations like Dundee Station or something like that, possibly even smaller. Everything's on a small town, uh, and it's got lovely beach, beautiful beaches that just seem to go on for it. And um, a couple of piers, which have got restaurants, crab shacks, you know, at the end of it, where you can buy seafood and have a beer and watch the sun go down. Uh, so yeah, Santa Barbara, California, here I come. The last question I've got for you, I'll link it back to football. Give me five reasons why you love football, the beautiful game. Beautiful, keyword. It's a, it is a beautiful game. I do uh, love the beauty of football. I love the... Um, juxtaposition. I love the proximity of the crowd. And I love, one thing I love about British football 
which I think makes it actually unique in the world. The game stimulates the crowd. In Britain, it's the other way around. I've seen games at Parkhead, and I don't just mean the Barcelona game. Uh, I've seen games in, in previous era. I mean, I remember one where Tommy Burns was playing. I can't remember who the opposition, but I remember Tommy Burns was the best player on the field. And Celtic were, you know how you can play FIFA or something like that? Celtic were played by the crowd. They knew what they could do and what they couldn't do. If a player took, made a bad run, there would be 5,000 people telling him about it. And he'd, he'd stop and he'd try another run. It, it, honestly, it sounds fanciful, this. But the crowd were playing that game. I'm utterly convinced of it. They certainly played the, um, the Barcelona game. And uh, I think oh, these are extreme examples, but I, I do love the way the crowd in, in our country plays the game. I, mean, I wouldn't say that, that, that's not to criticise the Barcelona thing where the, the crowd go in and Messi scores a hat-trick and, you know, they're all on their feet and it's wonderful. That's great. It's, but it's a different culture. We don't have Messi, but we do have the best. We do have tremendous crowd uh, atmospheres. So that would be a reason. I love the camaraderie. I love, uh, you know, you have time when you, when you stop being in, closely involved in the game. To think, what what is it you support when you support a club? You don't support the players, because if you're lucky, six of them will give a flying fig about your club. Uh, six out of twenty-four, you know, will really care about your club. Like Cammy care cares for Dundee. He doesn't have to kiss the badge, you know. He's off the terraces. Finley Robertson is off the terraces. Craig White no longer with us, but uh, he was he was of ours. But of the others, they're there because Dundee gave them a better contract than, I don't know, Hamilton or, or whoever else was in for them. So it's not the players, because the players don't love the club. They like it and they play for it. I'm not knocking them, but they don't love the club any more than you love uh, whoever makes your favourite brand of tomato sauce. You just, you know, you're there because that's the sort of tomato sauce that goes best with your chips. And so it's not that. It's not the owners, because Abu Dhabi's not in Manchester City because it, it loves Manchester. It's in there for a strategic, political, economic reason. Nothing wrong with it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. And it's been great for, for Manchester. Um, you, when you support a football club, you're supporting your fellow fans. And when I watch games, we've got a little group called Bees Down South. It's Dundee supporters based in London, or who can converge on London. And if there's a game on, we go to our pub in uh, Fulham called the Famous Three Kings, and uh, we persuade them to put on one of the 20 tellies this Dundee against Arbroath or whatever it is. And they say, what? Nobody else has asked for that. Well, we are. There's six of us and we drink a lot. So, you know, we, uh, we're, we're, we always get to watch it. And these people are like my brothers and sisters because uh, at least one of, of the regulars is, is a woman. 
they're they're like family to me and i remember reading an article an interview with a guy called giles brandreth you, you, you know the performer radio performer and he said he, he began the article by saying uh, that he that he was wealthy fulfilled he'd had a great career he had a lovely family he had a wife who he adored he had everything going for him and they couldn't understand why four days out of every week he woke up feeling depressed and the interview was with a psychiatrist who said well of course depression is no respecter of the fact that you've got two houses and a lovely family and the beautiful grandchildren i'm afraid it, it, it's nothing to do with it and he said well what can i do about it because uh, i feel guilty that i with all my advantages i'm not happier and uh, anyway the the, the psychiatrist after pointing out very painstakingly that there were no easy answers said that they gave certain five rules that might just help him to be more happy and they one of them included be part of something bigger now when you think about it how many pitifully poor people have been sustained by love of god or allegiance to a, a religion pride in the pope or the i don't know whoever whatever religion whatever is the head of your religion um and a football club and i'm not being trivial about this i think when i'm with those six people and if they see this program they'll be throwing uh, rotten eggs at me and saying don't be such a soppy uh but when I'm with them, I feel I'm with family, and it makes me happy. And I, I don't feel angry or anything like that. Even if we lose the game, I don't feel angry. I've, I felt I've not wasted a night because I've been with people who care about something. It's only Dundee, but I care about them. I'm interested in how their families are. I'm interested in how they're doing at their jobs because they support Dundee and because they have something in common. So I think it's the, uh, that family way of football is another thing i love how many do i have to come up with five uh i love talking about it i love arguing about it i love the fact that it it it's great for it's great for discussing and it's great for breaking down barriers with people who who you don't consider family who aren't close friends if you uh, meet someone on a train or something and you say to them uh, and they say something about, uh, uh, I see you're reading a book about, say, say I had, had a book about Jock Steen or something. They, they say, oh, I see you're reading a book about Jock Steen. Are you keen on football? I was, yeah, yeah. Are, are you? He said, oh, yes, I'm afraid for my sins. I'm a Grimsby supporter or something. Ah, oh, and I'd say, oh, God, there was a guy from Grimsby played for Dundee. Was and suddenly we're talking. And so I love that. I love the fact that it's a barrier breaker. Um, and the, the fifth thing is that it takes you to places that you wouldn't want otherwise go. And I don't just mean as a journalist. Um, 
uh, I mean, obviously, it, it was ridiculous, the privilege that I got in terms of travel. You know, I used to go behind the Iron Curtain a lot. So I, so I understood a little bit about what communism was, um, albeit from a, from a distance. Because, um, you know, sometimes we would meet um, people and they would, uh, you know, they would, they would talk. I remember going to Ukraine, for example, Kiev. I was with a pal and we met two women in a bar and they said, um, unfortunately, this story doesn't have, have uh, um, the ending that, uh, that you may be expecting, but they said, would you like to come back? We, um, we can uh, cook you some supper. So we thought, well, why not? So they took us back to their flat in Kiev and gave us egg on toast, I think it was. And, uh, and a glass of vodka. And talking about that, we talked about their way of life. And I, I said, you know, is, I noticed that she had a phone. And, 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 and I said, is the, is the phone, a phone call's expensive here. She said, the free. I said, what? She said, the free. I can ring Moscow. I can ring anywhere. This was the time the Soviet Union. I can ring anywhere and it's all free. And so things like that, you just, you know, got, got that kind of experience. But I don't just mean, obviously, journalists get to see all over the world, um, or did in the good old days, uh, because of football. But also, even uh, if you have another job and, and, and you, you're, you're a fan, I mean, sooner or later, and don't take this the wrong way from your Greenock Morton hat with your Greenock Morton hat on, but if... You, if you support most clubs, you're going to get into Europe or, or something at some stage. And because it doesn't happen very often, you're going to go. Well, more, more recently, we got a, and the, I was still working as a journalist at that time, but lots of my friends went to a place called Perugia in, in Tuscany. Absolute fantastic place. And they still talk about the three days in Perugia to watch Dundee get duffed by this middle of the table Italian club. And uh, but, so it's, it's the, the, sort of the enforced travel. You're not sort of saying, now where should we go for our holidays? Should we go to Mallorca or uh, Largs? You know, it, it's, it's the draw takes us to Perugia. It's 200 quid. Shall we go? Why not? It'll be good crack. And, you know, it, it, so it's, it's, it's an encouragement to random travel. Um, so that would be my fifth joy of football. Brilliant, Paddy. I've, I've absolutely loved talking football with you. Could talk all day. Thank you so much. Ah, well, we are, we are going to talk uh, another day. We're going to talk about Matt Busby next, aren't we? Absolutely. So uh, I'll, I'll look forward to that. But it's thoroughly, it's been, it's been my pleasure, uh, Callum. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will